I boarded a red-eye flight from Salt Lake City, Utah to Newark, New Jersey, nestled into my seat against the window, pulled out my noise-canceling headphones, and prepared myself for a mediocre night of sleep. Suddenly, a young lady plopped down in the middle seat next to me. To say that she was bubbly would be an understatement. It had been a while since I met someone so filled with joy. I thought, I've never seen someone this excited to board a flight, let alone a red-eye flight, let alone a red-eye flight to New Jersey. After some small talk, I learned that this young lady was a student at BYU-Idaho, and she was going on her year-and-a-half Mormon mission to New Jersey. She was thrilled. I kind of felt bad for her. This girl could have gone practically anywhere but her church, the Latter-day Saints, or LDS for short, sent her to New Jersey, and they sat her next to me, a Christian apologist and evangelical pastor. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast on the what and why behind Catholicism, and I'm in the middle of telling you a story that made me question everything I had ever thought about Christian history. Going back to that red-eye flight, the young lady and I ended up talking the entire flight. Yes, the entire flight. At some point, our conversation turned to theology because I was genuinely curious about what Mormons believed. So I asked all sorts of questions. I, I really didn't have an angle like trying to embarrass her or convert her. Instead, I was determined to try and understand the why behind her worldview, something I talked about in episode one. At some point in the conversation, she mentioned a term that I had never heard before, the great apostasy. I asked her if she would explain this, and she said, after the first apostles died, the church went awry, it became apostate, and God took his priesthood and authority away, and it wasn't until 1829 that God restored the church when he reestablished the priesthood with Joseph Smith. In the show notes, I've linked to the Latter-day Saints website where they define this belief. Wait a second, I said. You're telling me that the first apostles, the people that walked with Jesus, were incapable of pastoring the next generation of Christians? One of the last things Jesus told his followers was, go and make disciples and I'll be with you always, even to the very end of the age. Are you suggesting that he changed his mind? Or consider that all of history culminated in Jesus' death, his resurrection, and the arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Do you mean to say that God organized all of history? He made this grand entrance in the incarnation. He empowered Jesus' followers with the Holy Spirit, but God was incapable of guiding the church? It seemed so far-fetched. It's even odder considering that the LDS church believes that the Apostle John never died, and he's still on earth today. How is it possible that one of the most prolific theologians and pastors would sit idly by and let the church become apostate? But as I asked those questions, I had to ask that question of myself and how I considered church history. As a Protestant, I never used the term the great apostasy. However, I certainly believe something similar, that at some time in early church history, the church went off the rails. The details were fuzzy. Usually, we attributed the downfall of the Catholic Church to Constantine, and we believed it wasn't until the Reformation in the 1500s or even after that, that the church got its act together and rediscovered biblical Christianity the way Jesus intended. In my circles, we ignored all of the early church fathers. Uh, growing up, I had never heard of St. Clement, the third bishop of Rome, and if someone were to quote one of his letters, we would dismiss it as extra-biblical. Yet we were happy to quote modern Christians like C.S. Lewis, A.W. Tozer, or Max Lucado. Like the Mormons, most Protestants believe that there were some godly Christians here and there. We were happy to sometimes borrow the ecumenical parts of certain stalwarts like St. Augustine, while ignoring all the really Catholic doctrine that they practiced, preached, and defended. 
I can't speak for everyone, but at least for me, I would say things like the Catholic Church was the only church at their time, so it's not like they had a choices. And that was my way of overlooking their flaw of being Catholic. In fact, I was fairly convinced that if they were alive today, they wouldn't be Catholic at all, but rather they'd be on my doctrinal side of the Christian train tracks, so to speak. This conversation with this random stranger on an airplane led me to start reading the writings from early Christianity, and something jumped out at me right away as it does with just about every Protestant that reads the early Christian fathers. This church that I'm reading about, even in its infancy, looks very, very Catholic. It doesn't look anything like my evangelical mainstream church at all. Those church fathers like Justin Martyr, Origen, Tertullian, Patrick, or Augustine that I thought would have sided with me, the ones I conveniently quoted, they wouldn't have sided with me at all. They were very Catholic, fiercely defending the very beliefs I rejected. In fact, they would have called me a heretic. In his work, An Essay on the Development of Christian Doctrine, which I've linked to in the show notes, St. John Henry Newman, an Anglican priest who converted to Catholicism, wrote, quote, To be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. So much must the Protestant grant that if such a system of doctrine as he would now introduce ever existed in early times, it has been clean swept away as if by a deluge, suddenly, silently, and without memorial. End quote. My study of the early church fathers forced me to a conclusion. Christianity didn't go off the rails at the time of Constantine like we perpetuated in my Protestant circles. In fact, Constantine oversaw the Council of Nicaea, which led to the dogma of the Trinity. So if there was an apostasy, it didn't happen in the 300s or 400s because so much of the structure and doctrine that we call the Catholic Church was already well-formed by that time. So either the Mormons are right and Christianity went apostate right after the death of the apostles, or this whole notion of an apostasy is nothing but fiction and a convenient ploy to undermine historic Christianity and discredit the church. These days, whenever a Protestant asks me about a particular Catholic belief, nine times out of ten, I start off by saying, for 2,000 years, the church has taught X, Y, and Z. In other words, I appeal to the historic record of Christianity. Most Protestants, and Mormons for that matter, are completely ignorant about the early years of Christianity. I sympathize with them. I certainly was. It, it was like we completely ignored it. There was the Bible. Then there was this long history of silence that no one, at least in my circles, ever talked about. And then the Reformation. It was like 1,500 years of Christianity vanished into the ether. We're going to be diving into specific Catholic doctrines in upcoming episodes. But before we do, I want to preface it with this episode. Because as we go into doctrines, we're going to dive into what the church throughout history, particularly the earliest Christian fathers, have believed about a particular subject. Why does that matter? It matters because context matters. I was an English major, and before we tackled a particular author or work, we spent time talking about the author's context. For example, if you're going to read a Holocaust piece like Elie Wiesel's book, Night, or The Diary of Anne Frank, it's really helpful to understand the context around Nazi Germany, specifically Adolf Hitler, the concentration camps, the German invasions in World War II, and anti-Semitism. If you want to read 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, it's helpful to understand the colonization of Colombia and the Banana Massacre. If you want to better understand John Steinbeck's classic, The Grapes of Wrath, it's helpful to understand the Dust Bowl, the Great Depression, and the influx of migrant workers into California. If we merely read texts with our own lenses, we're likely going to miss out on the context in which the story takes place. 
The same is true with Scripture. Anyone can read Scripture and come up with their own interpretation, but are they right? There's a funny little anecdote about the danger of just reading Scripture with a limited scope. There was a guy who prayed, God, I want to follow you. I mean, really follow you. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull out my Bible, open to a random page in the Gospels, and blindly point. And whatever it says, that's what I'm going to do. So he opened his Bible and landed on Matthew 27, 5 and read, So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The guy said, well, that's weird. Let me try this again. He opened his Bible again. This time he landed on Luke 10, 37, which says, and Jesus said, go and do likewise. Uh, a little freaked out. He tried one more time and landed on John 13, 27, which says, what you're going to do, do quickly. On a serious note, I had a parishioner that would always take obscure biblical passages, literally, or claim that God told her this or that. At one point, she read Ecclesiastes 9.8, which says, clothe yourself in white. And even though she had no money and was pretty much homeless, she racked up credit card debt buying white clothes at a department store. It's great that we have access to the Bible. It's also a little frightening. The word of God is referred to as a sword. It's a weapon. In the wrong hands, that weapon can do unintended damage. As a pastor, I prided myself on my exegetical teaching. Exegesis means that I would take a passage of scripture and I would break it down rather than coming up with some sort of sermon topic like five ways to show kindness and then use proof texts of scripture that supported my point. A number of times I can remember choosing a particular passage where Catholics and Protestants would disagree, something like the bread of life discourse in John 6. I would criticize the way Catholics thought about that passage. I'd say something like, they can't be right. The way to look at it is this way. And I was convinced that my interpretation was more correct. Now, if I could go back and talk to my younger self, I might say something like, Justin, you're reading scripture alone in a vacuum, or at least in a limited scope. What if you considered how the earliest Christians read this passage? What if you read it with the collective memory of Christianity rather than merely selective amnesia? Why should I do that? Because the earliest Christians were much closer to the epicenter of Christianity than we are. They knew Paul and Peter and some of the other apostles. We have a few letters. They actually spent time learning from them. They didn't just receive a letter from Paul or Peter or John. They had weeks, months, and even years of learning from them. Our context pales in comparison to what they had. So when we read scripture, it would be prudent to glean the perspectives of people like Clement or Ignatius of Antioch, both who are referenced in scripture, since they were disciples of the apostle John. They might be able to shed light on what John meant when he talks about a particular idea in the gospel account or in his letters. To ignore them, to say, we, 2,000 years and thousands of miles removed from the context of the New Testament, know better than them, reeks of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. You can probably see how my progression to Catholicism began. Here I was conversing with Mormons about various beliefs, and I'd ask questions like, why do you believe that? Or why do you read that passage of scripture that way? And they'd respond that this was what was passed down from Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and the succession of Mormon prophets. And I'd say, okay, but what authority did they have to dismiss the entire record of Christianity? What makes this relatively young religion right and everyone else in Christendom wrong? How can you be so sure that the church just went off the rails 1800 years ago? because someone in the last 200 years said so? 
If the church went apostate, how can you even trust the Bible since that was what was passed down through Christian history and compiled long before Joseph Smith? And in asking those questions, I was struck with my own version of revisionist history. I could hear my Catholic friend Martin asking me questions like, okay, but where does Martin Luther get the authority to just decide that scripture is the only infallible source? Who is he to say that every Christian should be their own Pope and Council? Why should we believe guys like Martin Luther or John Calvin or Heydrich Zwingli and ignore 1,500 years of Christians before them? Where did you get your Bible from? You can imagine that once I started asking those questions and thinking deeply about it, things unraveled pretty quickly. The point is this. The church community remembers. She passes down history. She passes down stories. It's called holy tradition. Holy tradition is how the early church learned Christianity. The first letters of scripture, which we call the epistles, weren't written until about 20 years after the start of the first church. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11.2, Paul tells the church at Corinth, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions just as I handed them on to you. Everyone values tradition. Mormons look back on the tradition of their church in the same way that Lutherans look back on the tradition that has been passed down to them. Methodists look at the tradition passed down through John Wesley. We use that tradition as a lens to read scripture. We all do it. The issue is, where is the initial moment of one's tradition? If you were studying a historical event, would you limit yourself only to sources 1,500 or 1,800 years after an event occurred? Or would you consider the value of voices from that era as well as people who knew those people in that era? Ultimately, though, this is an issue of trust. The core question that needs to be asked of anyone who wants to sweep away the historical legitimacy of the church is this. Why would God allow that to happen? What kind of God orchestrates the birth of his church, inscribes his law in the hearts of believers, only to just let his entire church go apostate? We have to trust that the Holy Spirit was at work preserving his story. Jesus told Peter, after all, your name is Peter, which means rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I think it would be wise to take Jesus at his word. I can think of no greater slander than to accuse the Holy Spirit of being impotent against apostasy and accuse Jesus of abandoning his bride, which is the church. Let me leave you with this. It is pretty eye-opening reading the church fathers, hearing how they read and understood the theology revealed in scripture, getting insight into why they practiced Christianity the way they did. I would recommend starting with two books. One is Early Christian Writings, The Apostolic Fathers. I've linked to the book on Amazon in the show notes. However, you can find all of these readings in various places online. The second is Church History, written by the 4th century bishop Eusebius. I've linked to a free ebook in the show notes. I think you will discover as I that the tradition and structure of the Catholic Church didn't cause the church to go apostate at all. It actually saved the church. If you'd like to learn more about how Catholic doctrine develops and what it means to consider the collective memory of Christianity, I highly recommend listening to the podcast called On the Journey with Matt and Ken, starting with episode 100 called Mary the Mother of Who. I've linked to it in the show notes. I've merely touched on the topic of holy tradition here, but they really dive into it. In fact, they spend a lot of time on their series of Mary talking about the general development and value of church tradition. 
Again, I highly recommend it. I want to thank you for joining me for this episode of Why Catholic. We're going to be looking at specific doctrines about the sacraments in upcoming episodes, and we're going to be doing so with the collective memory of Christianity. In the meantime, please, if you haven't done so, subscribe. Subscribe to Why Catholic on your preferred podcast outlet. You can also join the Why Catholic community. Go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe to get started. You can also join Why Catholic on Instagram. Just search for Why Catholic Podcast, all one word. Hey, thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic.